I'm Kimberly C. Palm. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. This is Kimberly Paul with Death by Design Podcast, and I'm here with Neil Berenson. And I thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for having me, Kimberly. I'm delighted to be here. You know, before we jump in, I I want my listeners to know a little bit about your past history when it comes to chaplaincy and hospice. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this end-of-life field? Of course I can. I had been working in um, with older adults for many years in nursing home reform work in Pennsylvania. And my parents, one of the one of the real shifting events for me was my parents died five weeks apart in 2014. And prior to their dying, I was with them for literally every day of their life, helping to take care of them. And that was a sort of really one of those watershed moments where you go, this, something's calling me. This is this work is calling me. There was some, there was a beauty in being the, the parent of your parents again, you know, mm. reversing that role. And the other event for me, and I is that my niece is a rabbi, and she had done an intensive uh at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital in chaplaincy. And at the end of her intensive, her internship, she said to me at a social event, this is pre-COVID, hey Neil, <laughs> hey Neil, you would be really good at this. It was a combination of that comment and the work that that the the having been with my parents in that intensive way and the and the parenting that I was doing in some ways that really push me to go into chaplaincy late in my life and I call it my encore career um and that that was in 2017 18 and that's when I literally jumped in uh headfirst into this amazing field not that I wasn't in the field but it was in a different way it was more personal with individuals and families who were really suffering mm. so what what it have you learned at the bedside of those that you've served in your chaplaincy robe? Because you did work for hospice for quite a quite a while um, after you was, became a chaplain. Only, it was only about a year. Actually. Okay, well, uh, 365 days. <laughs> 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 um, but still, that's a lot. I learned, oh, let me start with humility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that, it. That we, that really what people need more than anything else in the whole world is something, someone to walk next to them. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, wow. I mean, you know, I think I need that even if I'm not dying, you know what I mean? It's like that, that perfect partner that that's like companion, you know, walking beside you, not in front of you, not behind you. And, um, Wow, that's a great explanation. Now, to discover a little bit more about you, because I know this, but my listeners don't, you're a big poetry guy. 
I am, but it was very late in life that I came to it. Now, what what is what makes this whole evolution of or who you are? What's bubbling up at at the this stage in your life? Is it your parents' death? Is it where you are as an adult? What what is opening your heart to, I guess, welcome who you've always been? That's a beautiful way to say it, Kimberly. It's always it's all in there. It's just what do you want to what do you want to focus on? What do you want to do? What do you want to bring up and meet? You know, in a sense. And um, so the poetry for me. You know, again, I, I wasn't a reader when I was in my younger life. I wasn't a reader. And I certainly didn't read poetry. And I think what happened was one of the events that happened, and, and the, as, as you know, these things sometimes are not clear until you say them. And then you go, oh, that's how it happened. Like it's, almost, <laughs> you're, you're, it's an improvisation. But I think what happened, Kimberly, was that I, instead of, you know, at, at the memorial services of my parents, instead of doing what my siblings did, which was talk about my parents, right? My, my mom, my dad at their event, respective events. I decided that, you know, stories about my parents were great, but I needed to write something that was more searing and more direct. Well, I needed to write poetry. I needed to write a poem mm. for each of them about my experience of them in some way that wasn't, wasn't a recapitulation of stories or their life per se. It felt like that's what I needed to do. I was called to do it. And I sat in Love my it. bed at night, many nights in a row, writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting until I found the words and they were not long. It was, these were not long poems that I read at their memorials. And that was so satisfying that in my chaplaincy work, I began to collect poems of searing beauty, mm -hmm. revelatory poems that for me fed my soul and my spirit. And literally at the end of my residency, my chaplain residency, I had collected 250 poems in a black bound notebook. Your, your listeners won't see it. I'm holding it up for you. <laughs> oh, wow. That's huge. It's huge. And I still have a few pages left at the end. Oh, wow. They're blank still. Now, they're also on my phone. They're also in a Dropbox file as a sort of a backup because I did sure. lose that note notebook. And that's a story. That's the second notebook. I lost one, hmm. um, which was an, what's a, another story and a lesson as well, which I won't go into now. You're not asking me about that. But <laughs> literally, the poetry was a way for me to say to somebody several things. One, I hear you and words, our normal words may be inadequate mm. for me to say, I hear you, like in the deepest way. So literally halfway, three, three quarters of the way through uh, an encounter with somebody, I often had, oh, they would really like this poem by so-and-so. And usually I could find it within about a minute. Mm. <laughs> like I don't have an index. It's just, they're just one after another. As I find them, they go in. There's no organization to it other than that. Um, it also got people to slow down, Kimberly. Mm. It also got, if, I, if someone was talking, 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 and I needed a rest, I could say, hey, can I read you a poem? Mm. And then I could stop listening for a little bit and just read slowly to them. 
every word mattered. It would be read very slowly and see how it fell on them. It was an, a, sort of part of a toolkit too. So it wasn't just the beauty of the words and the sounds and slowing down time, but it was also a way to sort of see how does this, these emotions at this point in this person's life fall on this person? Oh, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. You know, there's a lot of grief that comes with this work. And what's interesting is the intersection of grief and poetry. Talk to me a little bit about that and how you use poetry in a way to, I guess, bridge uh, the gap that we all experience when it comes to embracing and leading leading into the grief after losing someone. So grief, loss, sorrow, they're profound experiences for us. They move us deeply and some people deal with them rather well and others don't. And some of this is being open to sort of the mystery and all the feelings that come up, some of them may be regret, guilt, anger, and then all the sadness that we all know about and, and talk, mostly talked about. The feelings are complicated and not everybody has an ability to take them and not begin to feel bad about them. Like, or, oh, am I grieving the right way? Or, oh, I feel resent towards my mom, but, but she's, she died. How could I feel that way? So this is very Buddhist, but knowing, not judging all the things that happen to you in your heart and your soul as you're in this process. Poetry was my way to comfort myself and the person I was speaking with. Um, it would also be a way to, I had people who up, I had met with them several times. They had not showed tears and a poem was the tear jerking experience for them. Oh, wow. It allowed them to weep. And in the weeping, there was some sense, there was a consolation that comes after that. Hmm. Um, it was, some people would say, I haven't, I don't feel like I've grieved yet. And the poem, not always, I don't want to overstate this. And I talked about this, you know, that, that it brought up tears for people who had up to then felt like they weren't really grieving. I don't mean to say that it, that that happens. That doesn't happen a lot. That's a very unusual experience, but I'll take it <laughs> because it's, Mm -hmm. it, have, you've heard people say, I don't feel like I've grieved yet. Well, how do we help people grieve? There's a number of ways. If I listen to really sad opera, not that I do, that could help me grieve. Sure. If I, you know, songs will help me grieve, songs of sadness or of even uplifting songs might, make, might help me grieve. Poetry can help you grieve. It can help you find that place of sorrow, deep sorrow and tenderness, which we all have. It's just a matter of finding it sometimes. Right. Well, and you know, music is poetry to me in, in a different sort of form. And I am, I just love music. And if I can't express things with the pen or, or words, music, I can, I can do it through, not that I'm singing or playing the guitar by any means, but I can play a song 
and it can touch me and and heal me in some way, um, which I love. I absolutely love. Now, the function of poetry and healing and witnessing work, tell me a little bit about what that is in what you've seen, how you're working with um, patients who are who are experiencing a life-limiting illness. Talk to me a little bit about that function in of poetry and the healing process. I think um, poetry is a way to speak to a sorrow, someone's sorrow and and tenderness and compassion. And you know, in the in the heat of, in the depth of despair, after someone, after loss, a divorce, after the death of someone who's beloved, um, after some life-changing event, even after a diagnosis, a really serious diagnosis, there is profound sense of sorrow. And the poets that I love to read are deeply in touch with not just their sorrow and tenderness and compassion, but everything that makes them human. Hmm. Everything, okay? Their insight, uh, their love of nature, uh, their, their sense of quiet, like what does quiet do for them? How they use it in their life to be, to, to help them grow, to help them live better and to help them listen better. So in that way, poetry, I guess if I had to boil it down, it maybe teaches people indirectly how to be human. What does it mean to be a human being? I love that. I really like that. Now, you you worked as a, cha- uh, a chaplain in hospice. Now, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing now and how you're using poetry um, with your clients or people that you're working with. So I left hospice in June uh, of this year. In the middle of COVID. In the middle of COVID. And it was... It was difficult work, but it was not as meaningful. Here I am coming into a patient's room when I was allowed in, and often I wasn't. If I was coming into a nursing home, I wasn't allowed in. It was just nurses and uh, caregivers. But when I was allowed in, which was still rare in June, I was wearing a space suit. I had to keep distance. I had to keep at least six feet, if not more. The My encounters, proximity, in my encounters really matters. I often use gentle touch in my work when it's accepted by the patient. Um, It was so unexciting, so understimulating. I couldn't be who I wanted to be. It was very painful. And I went, you know what? Let me take a break from this. And I can come back to it again if I need to. And And a friend who had lost his wife asked, if, if his son would be willing to work with me, would I be willing to work with his son? This is right after I had left. And I said, of course. And that gave me an idea. Why couldn't I do my chaplaincy, counseling, support work through video conferencing uh, in private practice? And I started doing that more in July. And that's what I've been doing since July, primarily it, that's exactly what I've been doing is I've been meeting with people who have had some kind of loss, not, not just death. Uh, have it, I'm working with people who 
their children have cut them off for one reason or another, and they feel the loss that they're missing their child and they're missing their grandchild from that child. I've worked with people who had divorced two years ago and still dealing with some of the loss every time they pass that home that they used to live in with their partner and that fa their family. So it's not just death, but it's loss with a capital L or a small L. You know, we're so bad about grief and showing up for those individuals going through the grief process, whether it's losing someone or losing a job or, you know, losing something of ourselves even within divorce or, you know, starting even a new relationship of fear and 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 you 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 have that traumaticness that that you want to apply all that grief onto your present situation. I mean, how do you use the poetry um, to get individuals to get in touch with their innerness so that they can tap into that healing process so it doesn't paralyze them to move forward in their lives? Sure. I mean, I think there's a bigger question here is how does how does any kind of support service like counseling, right, therapy, um, how does it help people face the realities of their lives, right, and be, be stronger and find resources within, right? Because I want to be clear, I'm going to be clear with you. I may read a poem or two over an hour session. Okay, I'm not reading poetry every three minutes or right. 10 minutes, right? So poetry is just one tool to help slow people down and kind of, and, and really turn inward and let words fall on them like a waterfall and see where they align, where they fall. It's almost like taking a dream. You, and if I were to say to you a dream I had, you would have associations to that dream. And I'd want to say, hey, Kimberly, when I talked about that mountain stream running through and then the little frog that leaped into the river, what, what, what happened with you? Where did it land? Mm -hmm. Right? So I don't, I don't want to, again, I don't want to imply that poetry is to over, overthink how much poetry is being used or think that it's being used you know, 50, 50 minutes out of an hour. But I think the if I took your question of healing to a broader place, which is what happens, what's so magical? What happens in a healing environment? Well, a couple things. There's deep, deep listening with a third ear if you had one, okay? <laughs> I love that. There is um, an honest exchanged from exchange from the heart. My goal is, it doesn't always happen this way. 80, I'm listening 80% of the time. I, I'm listening and you, you're speaking 80% of the time as my client. I'm listening. I'm speaking maybe 20%. What I'm listening for and what I'm hoping to hear is I'm not hoping to hear anything. I'm hoping to hear your experience as deeply as you can reflect it. By me walking next to you, again, it's a companioning. I'm listening for themes. I'm listening for What's happening as you relate your story? What are, to me, what, how do I respond, my heart and spirit respond to what you're saying? When I'm struck by something unique, I might say it. Wow, what an amazing way to say what you just said. All I'm doing is helping you deepen your process of self-discovery, right? 
And then you begin to say things sometimes and you go, I never thought of it that way, but I've said it in a new way for myself. Or I might say, I hear you struggling with this. Is that the primary thing you're struggling with or am I using the wrong words? Again, in your words, I, I'm hearing this in my words. How about in your words? Is that what you hear yourself saying? Like, so there's a lot of reflecting and, and it just helps people go deeper and deeper and make some discoveries that they really didn't know. It's almost like a jazz musician who plays something that they never played before based on what they were listening for in the other musicians in the room. Oh, wow. That's, that's a great analogy, by the way. Um, that's really beautiful. And talk to me a little bit about the theories of philo- or philosophies that you work with when it comes to guiding individuals with grief or a lost practice. You, you know, it's interesting because what I've seen in my history is that when people are going through grief, their really close friends have no idea what to say or how to say it. And we end up saying things that could be hurtful. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the theories or philosophies of, of your practice. So some assumptions, and I'm going to actually pull off, pull out a couple very meaningful quotes that to me undergird my work. Okay. So one of them is the only feelings that do not change are those that are ignored. Hmm. The only feelings that don't, that do not change are those that are ignored. Okay. By Ann Brenner. Uh, a writer. You, you know what? You're going to have to read that one more time because I well, want to soak. I want to soak that up. That makes total sense. There's a couple of these that guide my work. If, if you if you can make. Oh, sorry. I'm I'm reading the wrong way. The only feelings that do not change are those that are ignored. That's powerful. Yes, it is. If you can make a place for your grief, your grief will change. You're blowing my mind right now. This is these are these are beautiful. This is one by um that I I've, I've been um struck by the work of um uh The Wild Edge of Sorrow is the name of the book um by Francis Weller and he wrote and this is again a guiding principle of my work. Grief is not a problem to be solved. It's a presence waiting for witnessing. It's the solitary journey that we cannot do alone that needs to be shared. Only then can there be a response, a protection, and a restoration of that which has been damaged. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's, <laughs> I, I'm speechless. I, I'm really, really speechless. I'll keep you. I'll keep you speechless in your speechless box, Kimberly. He also wrote, "It's our unexpressed sorrows, the congested stories of our loss of loss." I'm going to say it again because I messed up. It is our unexpressed sorrows, the congested stories of loss that, when left unattended, block our access to the soul. Wow. Oh man. And then finally, another one is where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. And that's that's an Oscar Wilde quote. Where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. I love Oscar Wilde. And, and it's so true. 
It's so true. Um, whoa, those are those are really, really powerful. And you know that even those quotes, when I listen to you read them, even opens something inside of me dealing with some of my, you know, long arc of loss that not to ignore it, but to embrace it. And, and by embracing it, even your traumatic past or however you dealt with it, by embracing it, it gives room for absolution or, or to move through it. It's just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I'm happy to hear that just those quotes themselves gave you a little bit of breathing space, like a little bit of space around your own sense of the losses that pile up in your life and the trauma and the things that horrible things that people have done or said to you, opening up the space to let them in and not let them paralyze us. But if we can explore them in a safe place, we have so much room then to grow from them and to, I wouldn't say we ever get past grief fully. I think, and you know, someone that I've read and love is Frank Ostaseski. Mm, good who, friend of mine. Oh, what a what a brilliant man who I attended a workshop of his a couple of years ago and read his book, The Five Invitations, would say in a heartbeat, maybe our relationship with grief changes, but how can we ever get over the loss of someone who is dearly loved? Mm. We'll never get over it. We might go through it. And have a different relationship with that grief or that loss of that person. But when I climb into bed at night and I lost a dear person, a spouse or a partner, and I climb in that bed and there's no one in it, right? Mm. There's a loss. How can it not be? How can it not be? If I'm living consciously, there's loss, right? Hit me in the face, right? Every little thing I do in my day reminds me of my partner. Mm. Deep in loss. Oh yeah, so beautiful. You know, some so many of us, and I say so many of us, underline me included, we tend to turn away from this, and it's very destructive. And and you know, only in my my wise old age of in my forties <laughs> do I tend to even embrace the uncomfortable. And I, it's I don't know why I didn't do this in my twenties. I was so, no, I'm not going to deal with that. You know, do you have anything that you use within your practice to help others who tend to turn away from their own grief, like tips or suggestions? Well, remember, if they've come to me, they're not turning away. Well, true, true. That's <laughs> so true. I already, got ahead. I already got a little ways up, right? right. They're coming to me. They're, they're admitting that they want some help, right? That they're suffering. And... What I'm trying to do is help them suffer less. I'm not going to take the pain away necessarily, but I want to help them function better and feel a little bit less suffering. Mm. Okay. So, so if I was talking to, let's say, people who weren't coming to me, right? And I hear the voice of Frank and I hear the voice of Francis Weller, what we'd say is that. What I might say is that to to be able to experience the the high the highest highs of life, 
you have to be able to experience the lowest lows. In other words, you if unless you go really go back and look at your sorrow, and sorrow can be sorrow about the environment. It doesn't have to be sorrow about a loss. The environment is a loss. Correct. And it's a big loss, right? Losing whole species of birds, right? That's a loss. So all these things, we carry this. We can't always face it. When we're in our 20s, we may not be brave enough to face it. Okay, it's just too hard. Hmm. We may not have someone to go, a guide either, right? So if you can face your sorrow in some very significant ways, then your love and compassion and all the other stuff, like the, the highs of life, are just magnified, I think. It helps you then become a whole person in all in all your rights and all of who you are, from the deepest sorrow to the, the highest highs. That's one that. way. I love that. that. You got, I mean, I feel like I need to sign up for a session with you. Um, because you're amazing. Your first session is free. <laughs> I I need you in my life to remind me of of and read those quotes to me every day. But seriously, how do people find and work with you? You're just such. Your energy is infectious, and your love for what you do comes across in in how you present yourself, as well as use poetry and and how to get people to slow, like you said, slow down time, which I love. So how do people find you? So um, not easily. (laughs) (laughs) How can I help you with that? Because um, I believe in you. Just by companioning me right now, you're helping. (laughs) Um, I have a website. It's griefandpoetry.com. Okay, that's probably the easiest place to find me. Um, I also am experimenting. I'm in my 60s. I'm experimenting with, um, see, I'm forgetting what it's called, Instagram. (laughs) 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 What's it called? (laughs) The I word? (laughs) Oh, I love it. So I'm trying to post, you know, four or five times a week. I, I, I prepare the posts in advance. And they're all set to go on each day, one a day, you know, for maybe five days in a row and then a break, get a break from me and my posts. And these are, you know, either quotes from Frank or Pema Chodron or Francis Weller or Gandhi or, you know, something inspiring. Or they might be something that I've learned Mm. and it might be a sentence or two that I put it just put out. And these are not how do you fix the world kinds of quotes. They're more, you know, inspiring, um, you know, where there's sorrow, there's holy ground, short, hopefully short, succinct phrases that are inspiring or lay down a message that seems that that seems really important. Mm. Um, At Grief and Poetry is my handle how'd I how'd I do with that look at that my handle is at grief and poetry I love that Um, those are probably the easiest ways to find me well before we leave yeah before we leave you know you're you're giving homage uh to your teachers um that have brought you and I you know with with all you know the Taoists and the Buddhists that I've already you know been involved with that is a very big part of my own practice of paying homage to my teachers and mentors. You know, let's talk about that really quick before I let you go, because, you know, we, we don't 
we don't come from nothing. And, and I would love for you to share how these individuals, maybe even mention a little bit more of them and how they've impacted you and your practice, because we all, at some point in our lives, are teachers, um, and we're also students. Um, so talk to me a little bit about you being a student and who is teaching you to go within. Okay. So I'll try to do this maybe chronologically, but I'm not going to start till I woke up in my master's program in my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> and actually it was only half of a wake up. It was a half wake up. I, I, it wasn't a full wake up. So in my master's program in counseling, um, in my twenties, um, I read the work of uh, a psychiatrist and systems thinker named Mary Bowen, B-O-W-E-N. And Mary, I call him by his first name, Dr. Bowen, whatever. Mary's work, he's no longer alive, um, was astounding to me in terms of how it talked about family systems and, and multi-generational transmission process of trauma and grief. Mm. Okay. And without getting into the details of his system, that, that system's work that he did was in some, in a small way, and it's weird, you don't hear this, in a small way, life-altering. I know you don't say life-altering in a small way in the same sentence, but in a small way, life-altering. It gave me a frame for some of the trauma of my parents and their, and their parents mm. and how that sort of was brought down into my generation, right? Um, a second person, uh, this is probably not in any good order. Uh, I guess more recently, um, the work of Pema children, who I mentioned earlier, um, who, who's, you know, for me, you know, I carry this book. It's tiny. This is a Pema book. Look, you can't even read the the front, but it's the pocket Pema children. Right. Mm. And you know, these are quotes from her and they're just one, you know, they're just, I'm showing, um, I want the audience to know I'm showing you the book. Um, you know, there's short ones, like that's one, it might be one page or it might be two and it's tiny. Like, I mean, this is six inches. Oh, wow. Right? That is like and a pocket. It's a pocket, Pema. And I get sent this to all my boys. I have three boys. We have three boys. Um, Pema talks about suffering all the time. And that our expectation is that we shouldn't have to suffer. But life is really about suffering. Um, and if you don't can't face that, uh, you, you're going to be hiding from it often. And um, it's going to be detrimental to you emotionally and spiritually. Um, I would say Frank Ossesky, who I mentioned earlier, his work, he directed the Zen Hospice Center in mm, San Francisco. Sure. and. His work um, with the dying people is outrageous. Mm. It's, it's so deep and spiritual and emotionally f- delightful. And he walks with people. He walks with them from his core. And he doesn't use a lot of techniques because what he says is techniques only will trip me up. They'll get in my way and just trip me. It's just about being human. Okay, um, the rabbi and theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel mm. said seven words: to heal a person, one must first be a person. Oh, wow! 
Wow. I'd been undeniably influenced by his philosophy, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, and the last person, and by no means this is this is an exhaustive, this is not an exhaustive list, there's more, is Francis Weller. I read his book recently, again, the 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 book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, puts sorrow and how we as a culture just don't deal with it. Mm-hmm. We we don't. We refuse to, puts it front and center for us and says, we have so much to learn from that. And all we do is bury over it. We just put up facade after facade after facade, bury it. And it becomes something that we can't touch anymore because we're so afraid of it. I would say those five people, if I counted right. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that because, you know, I'm always looking for other points of views and how do I continue to be a student of life and always have a a self-practice of stopping and thinking and reflecting. Um, Because if I'm not whole, then I can't show up for anyone else. But I love those seven words. Tell me that quote one more time, the seven words that... And it may may not be seven words. I miscounted probably. I'll count the words after I say it to you again, okay? (laughs) Um, To heal a person, one must first be a person. I love that. To heal a person, one must first be a person. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I don't know how much time we have left, but I would love, love to read one poem if I may. Please, please, Neil. I, I I would love for you to. So I'm thinking about what we've talked about today and I'm trying to, you know, I'm thinking hard again, this is what I might do with an individual who's in front of me in my practice. And I'm thinking what would be useful to Kimberly and maybe to your listeners. And it's much harder to obviously gauge your listeners. Um, And I'm thinking I'm thinking David White, because this is about grief and poetry, David White, and I don't often have poems that have the word grief in them. I just don't. It's not, it's not that I have anything against that. It's just that I don't think you need to talk or use the word grief in order to have poems be very meaningful to people. Hmm. But this one has the word grief in it. It's unusual. Hmm. And I'm going to, in David White's style, and it's a very short poem, I'm going to read it twice. Okay, he loves cool, please. Poems. The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. The Well of Grief by David White. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, We'll never know the source from which we drink the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins 
thrown by those who wished for something else. That's so beautiful. Wow. I love it. I love it. And I love who you are in my life. You even this this short experience with you this morning, you're just oh wow. I can't tell you what you've done for me um within this podcast uh recording, but also, you know, our, our many other conversations. You 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 teach me to pause. And and I need a teacher like that, Neil. And and you do it. And um, I think anyone that works with you is should uh, they're very blessed. Um, and I encourage anyone if you're dealing with grief or any kind of loss, reach out to Neil and allow him to open a new third eye for you. You know that that you can work with him and and kind of lean into the struggles that we all tend to face as human beings. But Neil, give me your website one more time. It's griefandpoetry.com. You're amazing. Griefandpoetry.com. And you know, if I was working with you, I noticed that you teared up about (laughs) a minute ago. And I would gently ask you, and you don't have to answer this, what what were your tears about at that moment? Hmm. And um, that would be be a way to open up the conversation because I can't assume I know. And it may be about one thing and it may be about right. a whole host of things. But that's the tears are the way in sometimes. Not always. You can go in other ways, but it's one way to go in and it's a deep way. It is in a very vulnerable way. And, and you know, the older I get, I, I think I cry so much more and it, I feel so much better about that and and that I'm not hiding it away that when I feel sad I I I cry and when I feel happy sometimes I cry um and it's I tell you by you just showing those tears it, I was so moved by them and I have to tell you I was honored by them oh well that you would show, show that vulnerable side of you to me in this little tiny interview of nothing. I don't mean it's nothing, but it's in the scheme <laughs> of the universe, it's a it's a little, right? It's a little little drip in the pond. So I have to tell you, every time someone has an emotional is emotional, I'm honored by it. Mm. It's honoring. It's deeply honoring. It means that you felt safe enough without a lot of thought mm. to to be vulnerable in that moment. Whew, I'm blown away by it. And I'm I have I, I literally I have chills. Oh wow. Well, I have chills. Um, and and I hope that we continue to have conversations and figure out how we can work together um, and help individuals uh, just look at grief differently and embrace it. Um, that will open up a whole new a whole new life for them for sure. Um, for sure. Neil, I can't tell you. Thank you so much for who you are in my life. For showing Kimberly, up, I, I, you're so welcome. I'm sorry to, I interrupted you, and I'm sorry. No, you're fine. No, you're fine. Um, I wanted you to know that, um, that I'd be happy to work with you. <laughs> <laughs> we got to figure that out. 
you 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 have plenty of access to lovely spiritual guides. So I, I'm not expecting it, but it it would be an honor and a blessing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm trying to th- put my arms around what to do this spring after we feel the impact, the full impact of this year that all of us have experienced. And I think this is the year of, you know, either numbing out or leaning in. And I I want to participate as we come out of 2020 as how do we help people lean in to what we've learned? And, and I think you're going to play a big role in that, Neil. Oh, well, if I can play even a small role, again, I'd be honored. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for your time. And thank you for the poetry. This, you know, you started off my day in this amazing way and oh, um, oh. you've made my day for sure. Oh, oh, oh. I'm going to read you one more. <laughs> Please. And you can edit it out if you have to, if this is way too long. No, no, please treat me. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll just read it once. It's a little longer. That's why I'm because of your time. But Two Countries, Two Countries by Naomi Shahab Nye. And I'm, I know I'm really messing up her name uh, because it's, it's uh, an Arabic name. Skin remembers how long the years grow when skin is not touched a gray tunnel of singleness, feather lost from the tail of a bird, swirling onto a step, swept away by someone who never saw it was a feather. Skin ate, walked, slept by itself, knew how to raise a see you later hand, but skin felt it was never seen, never known as a land on the map, nose like a city, hip like a city, gleaming dome of the mosque and the hundred corridors of cinnamon and rope. Skin had hope. That's what skin does. Heals over the scarred place, makes a road. Love means you breathe in two countries. And skin remembers silk, spiny grass, deep in the pocket that is skin's secret own. Even now, When skin is not alone, it remembers being alone and thanks something larger that there are travelers, that people go places larger than themselves. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for who you are. Um, Thank you for sharing this time with my listeners. And um, I just can't. I'm just wild by you, my friend. Totally wild. I'm I'm deeply appreciative of your time and that you're interested in this stuff and it it's it's my love. Yes, love. you next can tell. My, my next love. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, and, and she loves it. Yeah, too. yeah. Well, you know what? Let's figure out how to work together. But thanks for oh. joining me on this podcast and sharing your stories, sharing your poetry, and sharing your practice. And please. Uh, get in touch with Neil. Um, I'll have his website and hooked into his bio on this podcast. So it's really up to you. He's an an amazing human being. And uh, it's all about connection in this world that sometimes connection seems so far away. So Neil, thank you for your time. I'm humbled by what you've said. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, 
look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com. <laughs>